The cost of discipleship is high, but the reward is far greater. You're listening to Wonder Lake Bible Church, building mature followers of Jesus Christ. Find us online at wlbiblechurch.org. Now, here's Pastor Dan Cox with today's message. You know, it's been said, and I think it's true, that there is no greater or more joyful call in life than to follow Jesus Christ. Yet at the same time, the call to follow Jesus is one of the most difficult challenges we can pursue in life, isn't it? And it is true that salvation is free, that we cannot earn our redemption. We cannot pay for it. We can't do anything to be worthy of it. It is entirely a free gift of God given to us through faith. It's entirely a gift of God's grace. So it is free, but yet there is a cost, though, too, isn't it? How can something free have a cost? Well, it doesn't cost us anything, but there's the challenge of what we're called to, and that is the cost there. You know, there was a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a faithful German pastor who stood up against the Nazis, and he was arrested, he was imprisoned, he was eventually hanged by them about a month before the end of World War II. And he said something about discipleship, that is, about following Christ, that I am sure is really going to get us all excited for our message today. You know, when you see this quote, it's one of my favorite quotes, actually. And this, boy, I tell you, if this doesn't get your heart stirred for discipleship and following Jesus, I don't know what, what will. But, but here it is. Here is what he said about discipleship, about following Jesus. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Doesn't that get you excited there for it, Right? When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Now, what did he mean? Well, possibly literally and physically, right? It ended up being the case for him. Uh, But when God calls us, when Jesus calls us to himself to follow him, he bids us to come, follow him, and die. That is, we may die physically for him, but, but we are to die to ourselves, die to all of our worldly attachments and desires as he becomes the priority of our lives then. But here's what he said. Here is the context of that quote here. It's talking about taking up our cross, taking up our cross, dying to self. He said, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. And thus it begins, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him, come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time, 
death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. You know, he wrote those words from prison, and he would eventually die himself for that. So all of us, though, are called to die, to die to self, to die to worldly attachments, to the wants of the, of the flesh, sinful pursuits, die to anything which takes preeminence over the call first to follow Jesus. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So we are continuing then today in our series on the life of Christ, this utterly unique man. There has never been anyone like him. There is no one else like him in the universe, the God-man, looking at his life, his death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Following this, uh, as our text here, this uh, harmony of the Gospels put together by John MacArthur called One Perfect Life. And for today, then, we're actually coming to the conclusion of Jesus' second full year of earthly ministry, where here he was going to send out the 12, his disciples then, uh, and, and it said that they might go out and preach the gospel of the kingdom then. Our text is coming from Matthew 9, 35 through 11, 1, and Matthew 14, also Mark 6 and Luke 9, and we're putting all of those together into one harmonious account then. And the key thought then for us today is this. The cost of discipleship is high, but the reward is far greater. There's no question. That's a high cost. That's a high calling, isn't it, to follow Christ, to put everything else aside, to to serve him first, to love him more than anyone or anything else. That is a high cost. But there is no greater reward, though, in life than to follow Christ. A great reward here, but certainly a great eternal reward as well then. So before we look at our text here, a little context. We saw last week about a contrast here between belief and unbelief, that there were many people who believed in Jesus, but many others, though, who did not. We saw how belief healed a woman, how it raised a dead girl, how it opened blind eyes, expelled a demon, opened a mute mouth. All of this was done by the mighty power of Jesus Christ as that was unleashed through people's faith, faith in him. But then we also saw unbelief that blasphemed the power of God, claiming that Jesus did all of these mighty works through the power of the devil. We also saw unbelief that rejected the Son of God, his people right there in his own town of Nazareth who rejected him then. And how that then cut people off from the healing power of God. So we saw then how belief connects us to his mighty power, but unbelief cuts us off from that. So many believed, but most did not, including his own people in Nazareth. So Jesus then departed from Nazareth following his final rejection there. And he continued then to go about to all of the other cities and villages proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So let's pick up then our text here. We are told, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages in a circuit, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered, like sheep having no shepherd. And then he said to the disciples, 
The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Then he called his twelve disciples together and began to send them out two by two, and gave them power and authority over all demons to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Lebius, whose surname was Thaddeus. Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. So first then, as we look to understand our text and what we're being told here, we see that there is a plentiful harvest. As Jesus looked about, he saw a plentiful harvest, that there were many people, many souls that needed to hear the gospel of the kingdom, the good news. But we're told that when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them. You know, I think sometimes we can feel a little bit overwhelmed by the task, can't we? the task of reaching this world for Christ. Sometimes it feels overwhelming just to reach our family for Christ, right? Let alone a neighborhood, a a community, a nation, the world. And it could be overwhelming, and we might want to just step back and say, well, I can't do this. But when Jesus saw the multitude, he saw their spiritual need, and we're told then that he was moved with compassion for them. In other words, this moved with compassion, that term there means literally coming from the, the deepest part of our, of our guts, if you will. Not a pleasant way of thinking about it, but that's what it was. He was moved in his guts for them. In other words, you know how sometimes when we have a strong emotion, we can just like feel it inside of us like that? That's how he felt. He was moved with compassion for them. Why? Because he didn't see an overwhelming task. What did he see? He saw a great number of people who were so spiritually needy that they were weary and scattered. Why were they so weary? Why had they been scattered? Well, because they had terrible spiritual leaders. Who were their spiritual leaders? The Pharisees, the religious rulers. Did they properly care for the people? No, they used them, abused them, exploited them. They put all kinds of heavy burdens upon them, right? All kinds of heavy man-made religion and legalism that they put upon the people, that they couldn't live up to that. Now, how many of you know it's it's a challenge following the law of God? In fact, we can't do it perfectly, right? That's why God sent his son Jesus to perfectly follow the law for us, right? But how much more so then when human beings take it upon themselves to throw more and more burdens and man-made rules and regulations upon them that God never intended for them to carry. And so the people were weary. They were scattered. They didn't have good shepherds, good shepherds who should have been pointing them toward 
the true shepherd. So his heart was moved with compassion. And he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful. There's so many here, but the laborers are few. Who are the laborers? The ones who go and and speak to them and preach to them. He says, therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You know, isn't it amazing? Does God need you? Does God need me? He doesn't need any of us to do his work, and yet God chooses to work through us. Now, I am glad that sometimes he does not choose to work through me. He just does it himself. When he, when he wants to get it done, he gets it done, right? But he also, though, chooses to work through us, doesn't he? And so here are all of these people who need to hear the good news. And he says, pray for God to send out laborers to work in people's hearts, to move them, to go and to speak. He doesn't need us, but he chooses to work through us. And then he says something, and I don't have you know, some brilliant insight to give you here on this, but here it is. You know, God, does, God only doesn't need you and me, but also does he need you and me to pray to do anything? No, he doesn't. But yet he chooses to act through our prayer. Now, sometimes, yeah, we don't pray. He just does it. But oftentimes, though, he chooses to act through our prayers, even though he doesn't need to. I don't know why he does that, but he does. He alone gets the ultimate glory, doesn't he? But he likes to share the joy of that with us, with his people. And I think that is why he does that. He likes us to share in his joy. So God doesn't need you and me to reach the multitudes, but he chooses to work through us. So we see there is a plentiful harvest, and we see a commissioning, a commissioning of the 12. He called his 12 disciples together. What is a disciple? It literally means a learner or a student, a follower, And Jesus had many disciples. There were many who followed him, who were seeking to learn from him. But 12 of them were specially called out and referred to as the 12, who would have a special role of leadership in the church. Wait a minute, you're saying Judas is scary. Judas didn't, he he didn't have a special role of leadership in the church. No, he didn't. Remember, he betrayed Jesus And then, of course, he committed suicide, but he was replaced then, wasn't he? And so the 12 then were specially called out. They were referred to then as the 12 who would have this role of leadership in the church. And here now, this is Jesus sending them out, sending them out two by two. Why two by two? Why not separately or something? Well, because it's a good strategy, isn't it, for support and encouragement for one another. He gave them power and authority to cast out demons, to heal sickness and disease. In other words, to do what Jesus had been doing. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God. 
So they had watched as Jesus had been doing all of these things, and now he says to them, you are going to go out and you are going to do what I have been doing. And they were told to take nothing for the journey except a staff. What was a staff? What was it like a club? It was protection from criminals and wild animals. But other than that, they weren't to take anything. No, No bag full of possessions, no bread, no money, no copper in their money belts. Imagine that. God had, was calling you. He said, okay, you're going to go out, but don't, don't, take, don't take any money. Don't take any extra clothes. Don't take any food. Just go. Now, why in the world would he do that? He was teaching them what? Faith and dependency on him. To trust him to meet their needs. So they were to depend on God to supply their needs through the people to whom they ministered. And he told them, well, wear sandals, but don't put on two tunics. What's that about? Well, to have two tunics was a sign. And clothes were a very valuable thing (laughs) to them in those days. And so just one pair of clothes was what most people had. So two tunics is what? This This was a sign of wealth. And so he said, don't, 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 take, don't take two, but only what you need to identify with the common people. I wonder, well, Jesus was doing a pretty good job in his ministry of, going around, of healing and preaching, wasn't he? But now he sends them out. Why did Jesus send them out like this, do you suppose? Well, it says this is nearing the second year of his earthly ministry. So in about a year from now, from this point, he was going to go to the cross and die and rise. With that in mind then, why do you suppose Jesus is sending them out now to do this? Experience, he's training them. It was like a boot camp. There you go. It was like an internship. He was preparing them because in a little over a year, What commission were they going to be given? To take the gospel where? To the ends of the earth. This was a training mission for them. To prepare them for what they would be doing soon in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And then we're given the names. We're given the names of the twelve then. And here... Rather than being called disciples then, they are now called what? Apostles. They're called apostles. An apostle means one who is sent. One who is sent. So a disciple is a student, is a learner. An apostle, a sent one. It's an official representative of an authority figure. It is a person who is charged with a sacred mission. You know, and every time the apostles are listed, it's interesting you see that that they're not always in exactly the same order, but there is a certain pattern that you will always see regardless of which gospel it is in. Among, whenever they are listed, who is always listed first? Peter. Simon Peter is always listed first. Who do you suppose is always listed last? 
Judas Iscariot, right? But then you'll see them in three groups of four. And they're always in this order. Maybe the, the names might change a little bit in the, in the order of them. When the, but they're always in these three groups of four. First is Peter, and then his brother Andrew, and then the sons of Zebedee, James and John. Because what? They were the most prominent among the twelve. And then you have a second group, that this group has always comes in then right after them before. That's Philip and Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, Thomas the twin. I think it's good to call him Thomas the twin rather than Thomas the doubter. That poor guy, you know, it's like he, he's an all throughout churches, we call him Thomas the doubter. And yet, first of all, how many of you think if you had been in Thomas's position, you might have, you know, and they were all saying, we have seen him alive how many of you think, you know what, I'd like to see it myself, though, right? I think probably all of us would. And yet he gets this, you know, bad rap here as Thomas the doubter. And yet on other occasions we see him, he's ready to die for Jesus, right? So I think we should make a, a commitment here. Now, we're going to call him Thomas the twin, right? Thomas the twin rather than Thomas the doubter then. So Philip, Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, Thomas the twin, and then Matthew, the tax collector, I bet there were some interesting conversations around the campfire with those guys sometimes, don't you think? And then this last set of four, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, also known as Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but Judas, the son of James, and then Simon the Canaanite, better translated Canaanian, which was a term for the party of the zealots. And who were the zealots? They were a group of, of persons, a political party that, party that violently opposed Roman rule. And so sometimes we see him referred to then as Simon the Zealot. Do you think Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector had some interesting conversations sometime? Do you think that is a coincidence that Jesus called a tax collector and a zealot to follow him? No. It's like calling a Republican and a Democrat to follow you, right? That's what he did. And then, lastly, Judas Iscariot, where it's always noted, who betrayed Jesus. And isn't it interesting here, too, to note that Jesus sent even Judas out to preach. Now, did Jesus know what Judas was going to do? Sure he did. But he sends him out to preach, knowing full well that Judas was not truly with him. He did not truly believe. And he would one day betray him. But he sends him out. And did God work through him? Do you think that Judas preached the gospel? Do you think that, oh, by the way, how would you like to be the guy that got paired up with Judas, you know, looking in retrospect now, right? But of course, at the time, you wouldn't have thought anything about it. In fact, you would have thought, oh, you liked being with Judas because he was the treasurer of the group. He was perhaps the most trusted among all of them, right? But Jesus sent him, and he preached, and he worked miracles, what does this say to you and me? It says that God can use anyone for his purposes. You think God works through false teachers today? He does. Now, I am not endorsing false teaching. Don't give me that look back there, Joy. I see you back there. I am not endorsing false teaching, and we need to speak out against it, right? 
But isn't it good to know that God can work even through a false believer, in this case, with Judas, right? Now, Joy, don't go home and tell Don that I said it's okay to preach false teaching because God can use this anyway. I did not say that. I'm not saying that. But he can, can he? goes on, we're told, These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Take nothing for the journey. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics apiece, nor sandals, nor staffs, nor bread, nor money, for a worker is worthy of his food. Now, whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy. And when you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. And when you go into a household, greet it. And if the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake off the very dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, and therefore be wise as serpents and harmless of doves, as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Now, brother will deliver up brother to death, and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. And when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, do not fear them. For there's nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body. They cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, 
Him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly, I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there and to preach in their cities. So they went out and went through the towns preaching the gospel that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them everywhere. So here we see the instructions Jesus gives them. He tells them, don't go to the Gentiles, don't go to the Samaritans, but rather what? Go to the lost sheep of Israel. Was this because Jesus didn't care about Gentiles or didn't come for them? No, he did. He came for all. But here, he says what? First, and eventually they would go to the Gentiles, wouldn't they? But now, what were they told? To concentrate first with to whom? Their own people, the Jews. Go to the lost sheep of Israel. The time would come when they would go to all the world. But for now, they were told, go to your people first. Preach that the kingdom is at hand. Heal, cleanse, raise the dead. That's interesting, raise the dead, right? Cast out demons. In other words, what? Do the work that Jesus had been doing, but now they were to do it. Jesus was going to do his work through them. And what? Don't take any of this stuff. Don't take money. Don't take any of that. What? Trust God to supply your needs through the people to whom they ministered. When you go into a city, inquire who in it is worthy. Now, what do you mean? Who's worthy? Who's worthy? None of us are worthy, right? So what does it mean? Well, to be worthy here means, in the sense, a worthy person, it simply means one who is responding favorably. If you see someone that is responding favorably, go to them and, and, and stay with them. When they were accepted into a house, they were to stay in that house until the work in that city was through. But if the people are not worthy, that is, they do not respond favorably to you, then do what? Move on. You've got other places to go, right? Depart from there and shake the dust from your feet. You know, shaking the dust from your feet was a symbol of rejection. That as they were being rejected, they were to then reject that city and turn it, leave them over to God's final judgment then. But then we also see in this passage about the cost 
the cost of discipleship. He warns them and says, you are a sheep in the midst of wolves. Isn't that an interesting mental picture? Even today, especially in their day, how much more so, but even now, think about as a sheep among wolves, right? In other words, what? we're surrounded by opposition, hostile opposition. But we're told, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. What did Jesus mean? Well, to be wise as serpents means because we're surrounded by such hostility and opposition, be careful and take proper precautions to avoid unnecessary danger. Now, it's true that preaching the gospel in a hostile world is dangerous, right? But we don't have to be foolish about it either. Be wise, be careful what you do. But on the other hand, though, we're told what? Be harmless as doves. Being harmless as doves means don't forcibly oppose the enemy. So be careful, but don't violently oppose them. We're not to go out with a sword, are we? And to start killing the enemies of God, right? It's important as we read through this and we think, no, again, what was Jesus preparing them to do? To go out and to preach the gospel of the kingdom to the Jewish cities in that area there. It was part of their training mission. But when you read through that, it's like, Wow, it sounds like there's a lot more going on here. Those things that Jesus warns them for, did any of those things, do you think, did all of those things happen to them on this training mission they were on? No. So Jesus isn't just talking about their immediate future and what to expect. You'll see what? He's expanding it to say to them, not just what's going to happen in the immediate future to them, but also... What in the longer-term future? When they were going to be dragged before and scourged, persecuted, taken before kings and governors? He says, don't worry, you will be given the words to say then. Delivered up to councils, scourged in synagogue. So what Jesus is saying here is he's giving them and us a grand sweeping vision of Future history, if you will. The future history of opposition to the gospel and the persecution of the church. That yes, some of this applied to their immediate future, but also their long-term future as they went out to preach the gospel after the resurrection. But then also then to the future for those in the church who would come after them, including us today, and not just all the way up to us today, but who else for those who come after us all of the way until Jesus comes again? Remember he said, I tell you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Meaning what? Before the second coming. In other words, is the job ever going to be completely done until Jesus comes? No. We're going to continue all the way preaching until Jesus comes. Sadly, though, this preaching of the gospel will cause even families to divide. You know, politics divides family and friends. But the gospel can do so even more, can it? And sadly, this will continue all the way 
until the end when Jesus comes. And he warns him, he says, what? If he, Jesus, if he was persecuted, so will we be as well. If they call Jesus the devil, how much more so will they speak evil of us? But he says, do not fear them, right? because God is the judge, and all will be revealed in the end. Every secret will be known. Everything will be revealed in the end. God is the judge, and we therefore need not fear them. In fact, don't fear the ones who, what's the worst they can do to us? Kill the body. But rather, fear the one who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. We need to fear God, not fear people. And when we are fearing God, we need not fear man. Now, we've said before, in fact, I even spoke quite recently, how Jesus is the Prince of Peace, isn't he? Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and the gospel brings peace. Peace with God, the peace of God, peace among believers. But inevitably, it also brings judgment and division among people, doesn't it? Because following Christ demands our all. He must be the one whom we love more than anyone or anything. And we are to love him even more than father or mother. We are to take up our cross and follow him. When we take up our cross, we die to all of our sinful desires and worldly attachments. And this inevitably causes division among us. But there's rewards. There are rewards. Jesus says, A sparrow does not fall to the ground apart from your father's will, and the very hairs of your head are all numbered. And therefore, what is he saying? Is that we can rest in God's all-knowing, loving, and sovereign care for us. Yes, it's a, it's a challenging life we're called to, but he sovereignly cares for us. And that Jesus will confess before the Father those who confess him before men. When we speak of him before people, Jesus speaks of us before God the Father in heaven. And whoever loses his life for the sake of Christ will find it. Meaning what? When we die to self, when we die to sinful desires, when we die to worldly attachments, that is when we find real life, true life in Christ. And you know, too, that uh, you don't have to be a prophet or a missionary to receive a prophet or a missionary's reward. All you have to do is support them. Did you know that? When you support a prophet, a missionary, you think, oh, the prophet, the missionary, they're going to get a great reward. Well, so are you for supporting them. You support them, we support them what? In our prayers, our hospitality, financial support. He who receives a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. He who receives a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. Even giving a cup of cold water will be remembered and rewarded by the Lord. Forever rewarded. There was a man named John the Baptist who had faithfully preached and proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. How did that turn out for him? Pretty great, actually, in the end, right? Ultimately. 
But now Jesus is sending these, these men, these 12 out. They're preaching, stirring the people. The people are, are interested. They're excited about this. And meanwhile, there's King Herod, King Herod the Tetrarch. King Herod, the, he was the son of the King Herod, who was the king when Jesus was born. King Herod, that one. This is one of his sons, King Herod the Tetrarch. We're told, now at that time, King Herod the Tetrarch heard the report of all that was done by Jesus, for his name had become well known. And he was perplexed. And he said, John, I have beheaded. But who is this of whom I hear such things? It was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and others said, it is Elijah. And others said, it is the prophet, or like one of the old prophets, risen again. But when Herod heard, he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist whom I beheaded. He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. And then oddly, so he sought to see him. And then we're told the story of what had happened to John. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. And because John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife, therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not, for although he wanted to put him to death, Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. He also feared the multitude, because they counted him as a prophet. Some complex stuff going on inside Herod's heart, right? Then an opportune day came when Herod on his birthday gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced before them and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. And he promised with an oath, to give her whatever she might ask, and also swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And immediately she came in haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Yet, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. And immediately the king commanded it to be given to her. So he sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when the disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb and went and told Jesus. So here we see the troubled confusion of Herod. Here is Herod the Tetrarch, one of the sons of King Herod when Jesus was born. And he had reluctantly put John the Baptist to death sometime before this. We're told the story of, that, of how it happened. Herod was torn apart on the inside. Why? Because he was intrigued 
by all that he was hearing and seeing. There was something that was drawn to him. He recognized him as a holy and righteous man. He knew he was a prophet, and something was drawing him to John. And yet, his ultimate loyalties lie elsewhere in his devotion to his sinful attachments, his sinful marriage. So now John is, is died, and now all this is happening here. What, what's going, I, I thought John... So we're saying we, we have to explain this, and, and Herod came to believe that, that somehow that the spirit of John the Baptist had, been, had, had risen, that he had risen from the dead. And oddly enough, what was his reaction? He wanted to see him. Herod was a man torn apart on the inside. Something that was drawn to truth, but was still firmly attached to his sinful desires. We read of the martyrdom of John. Now you might think at this point, this is the reward John gets. <laughs> Jesus said, What? There was among men there was no greater prophet than John the Baptist. And this was his earthly reward to be imprisoned and to die. John was a faithful servant, and this was his earthly end. But I ask you, was that the end of John? No. And I ask you, how do you think John, do you think John regrets it now, all that he did? No, he didn't. He doesn't. Because that may have been what John was called to and the end of John's earthly life. But he has reserved, he, he, is, he has been given a great eternal reward now, hasn't he? I'm sure he doesn't regret it at all now. So, what is the cost of discipleship? Take up your cross, die to self, die to worldly affections and attachments, die to the sinful pleasures within. It's love and allegiance to Christ first before all other relationships, including family. It's being willing to suffer rejection, perhaps even among your own family. Hostile opposition, persecution, hardship, imprisonment, perhaps even physical death. And we saw that with John the Baptist. And while we cannot know for certain, church tradition tells us that all of the apostles except John died a martyr's death. Was it worth it? Is it worth it? Eternal life, perfect righteousness, a resurrected body, heavenly reward, a new earth, and the promise that even temporary troubles result in eternal blessing. I love this passage in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18. Here where Paul is speaking of some of the, the difficulties we may face in this life. But he says, and this, this is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. It's one of the most mysterious verses in Scripture, and yet so wondrous and wonderful, isn't it? 
In other words, our troubles, these things that we face now, are somehow producing for us a glory that vastly outweighs our troubles and will last forever. So we do not look at the troubles we can see now, but rather we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things that we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. So what? Well, remind us, the cost of discipleship is high, but the reward is far greater. Are you a disciple of Jesus, a learner, a student, a follower? Are you willing to pay the cost of discipleship? When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die, die to self, die to worldly attachments, die to higher loyalties than him. And do you value the reward of discipleship above anything this world? Nothing this world offers can even possibly compare with what God gives us in Christ and following him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this hope that we have in Jesus Christ. I know we've had a lot to consider here today, Lord, but I pray that you would take what we have read here from your word, that your spirit would apply that and speak to our hearts now. Lord, we know there is no greater life than to know you and follow you. Lord, help us to turn away from anything that is not worthy of you, to repent and turn away from sinful things, sinful attachments, But Lord, even things that are not sinful in and of themselves, but perhaps hold a greater hold on our hearts, are of more importance to us than, than you and your calling on our lives. May we turn away from those, die to those things, embrace the cross, and follow you, knowing there is no greater life than a life of service and joy and an eagerly anticipating that heavenly reward that awaits us. Thank you, Lord, for our hope in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more information about Wonder Lake Bible Church, visit wlbiblechurch.org.